Good morning. I'm Nayaswami Bharat, and this is Nayaswami Anandi. And we'd like to welcome you to Sunday service on this glorious day. And our guests at the Expanding Light in the Yoga Therapy Program and Spiritual Counseling, and all those joining us online. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. And our topic is for this week, First Things First. <clears throat> Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. That expression, first things first, is a piece of counsel often given to students of business techniques. It is the advice of practicality to those who aspire to worldly success. But according to Hermetic doctrine, as above, so below, that which works best in one level of life is often the best guide to what will work best on every other level. If a person is true to his highest priorities, he will generally find that his other needs are fulfilled naturally as well. This is true certainly of the search for God. One of the greatest sayings of Jesus Christ was a simple sentence in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paramahansa Yogananda gave his elder brother Ananta a wonderful lesson in this truth. It was Ananta who had captured him and brought him back from his flight to the Himalayas, described by Yogananda in his autobiography, Yogi. In Yogananda's book, we read, we read how Ananta later challenged him in the city of Agra to pit his divine faith against such practical, worldly considerations as the need for earning a living. Fearless before that challenge, the young aspirant agreed to go by train, without any money, to the nearby town of Brindaban, not to miss a single meal in Brindaban, and to find his way back to Agra without begging and without in any other way asking for help. In one of the most thrilling chapters in the book, Yogananda fulfilled all the conditions of the test. Yogananda continued the account. As the tale unfolded, my brother turned sober, then solemn. The law of demand and supply reaches into subtler realms than I had uh, supposed, Ananta spoke with a spiritual enthusiasm never before noticeable. I understand for the first time your indifference to the vaults and vulgar uh, accumulations of the world. Late as it was, my brother insisted that he receive diksha, initiation, into Kriya Yoga. As the Bhagavad Gita puts in the ninth chapter, those who worship lesser gods go to their gods, but those who worship me come to me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh. Good morning, everyone. I would like to welcome you also 
and say if there's anyone here who's visiting for the first time and would like to know more about Ananda, we have a greeter at the desk in the foyer, and also we'd like to invite you to lunch over at our expanding light across the meadow. So I'll begin first by reading from Whispers from Eternity. These are prayers written by Paramahansa Yogananda. I attuned my life with thine. Now my life has become a long, unbroken inspiration. Thy fountain of bliss refreshes and delights me night and day, whether I be wakeful, fast asleep, or dreaming fondly of thee. Oh, what has become of me? Delight on overwhelming delight, endless, indescribable thrills of divine delight spray unceasingly over me. O aged nectar, wine of centuries, I found thee at last and will taste of thy sweetness forever, forever, and forever. So the reading this morning, which is one of my favorites, first things first, with the very important Bible passage, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. That's very special to me because I feel like I've experienced it firsthand. When I came to Ananda in 1971, absolutely nothing that you see now was here. A few things that you don't see were here, trailers, (laughs) old barns, decrepit buildings. Um, And really, the secret of why we're here in this miraculous temple is that simple Bible passage, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. In uh, the reading, uh, Swamiji talks about the chapter in uh, Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, Two Penniless Boys in Brindaban, And he says, this is one of the most thrilling chapters in the book. It's also one of the most endearing and entertaining chapters in the book. And I thought it'd be fun just to not, I think most people here have read the book, but maybe not everyone. And it is really quite a marvelous chapter. So I wanted to share some of the highlights of it. In this chapter, as he read, Ananta asked that Yogananda go to Brindaban, with no money, doesn't tell anyone why he, that he needs help, that he receives all his meals, that he tours the city of Brindaban, that he returns home by train, and that this all be provided for him by God. And in that chapter, what makes it so entertaining, among other things, what makes it thrilling is that it all comes to pass in ways that are far beyond what would, you know, he didn't end up just getting like um, toast and cereal for breakfast, for for lunch, he ends up getting this exotic, enormous banquet, the finest meal he'd ever had in his life, and so forth, and everything unfolds much, much more um, uh, expansively than he could have imagined. But through it all, for Yogananda, this is is normal for him. he loves God, he lives in God, and he expects that his father, he knows that his father has, will always take care of him. 
but he has along with him his comic companion, Jitendra, who's the perfect foil. Because while Yogananda just sets off like, oh, wonderful, we're going to have this adventure with God, Jitendra is just complaining and moaning and talking about starvation and, and this is a disaster. And, and then, you know, then he gets taken to the banquet and then he weeps because he has been so shallow and is doubting. And then the minute the banquet's over, he's once again complaining and fearful. And then they get taken on a tour of the city. And uh, at the very end of the day, they're showered with rupee notes and, and ticket back to Agra and, you know, dessert for the train and so forth. And on the train, Chitendra's weeping again, and he's just, <laughs> I'll never, I'll never, never uh, turn my back away from God again. And then they get home, and then they're, the next day they're going to go see, uh, they see the sights, and then they're going to go to uh, see Yogananda's guru. But now Chitendra has once again decided, well, you know, I think I should go see my family. And so it just gives you the, you know, here, here you are. He's, he's a seeker. Jitendra's a seeker, but just so easy to forget. And that's our biggest obstacle on the path, is not that we don't know what to do, but we forget what to do. Um, in 1976, a book came my way. And this is the actual book. You can see it's a little the worse for wear. Um, it was called Letters by a Modern Mystic. And it is a book by a, a Protestant minister about his life with God. And he's from Pennsylvania. And he writes in a very normal style. He's not an avatar like Yogananda. He seems like a regular person. And, Yet he writes about, here's what I did. I, you know, I took all these steps. He was, um, he went on a mission to the Philippines with his wife and son. And at a certain point after being there, he felt called to go to a more remote island, which was much wilder. The people were much more primitive. But he felt that that's where God wanted him to go. And his wife and child didn't have the health to uh, go with him. So he went by himself to this island. He didn't know the language. He had to learn the language. And while he was learning the language, there was nobody even remotely interested in the fact that he was there. And he wasn't trying to convert them. He said, these people have a religion. This is their religion. I honor it. So while he was in this state of tremendous loneliness, what he did was he turned to God. And he began to say, let me see if every hour, if once every hour I can think of God. If I can turn my mind with my will, turn it to God. And he did that, and then he extended it and extended it. And said, how about every, um, every minute? How about every second of every minute. How about if I just continually stay in this flow of God? And the book takes you through such beautiful and inspiring experiences, as well as, well, today I fell back. Today people came over and they wanted to be chatty and talk about other things, and I didn't want them to feel that I was uh, uncool. He didn't say that, but, but that was the idea. And so he got into that and forgot God, and he just is right out there with all of it. 
but more and more through it, he feels this, this exalted bliss guiding everything in his life. Uh, when I found this book, I, um, I sent a copy to Swami Kriyananda, who was in seclusion in India. He had just finished writing his book, The Path, and he was uh, on a year of seclusion. And I got a letter back from him that said, oh, he said, I was wishing I had this book. Because he had met Frank Laubach, and he said, this man is a true saint. And he really appreciated the spirit in that book, which, which was really interesting, something I still think about. Did God use me to find the book to make sure that Swami could have it in seclusion? It's a mystery I'll, I'll never know. But, um, but I actually read it many times, and I actually carried it around in my backpack for years, which is why it looks like this. And I'll, at the end, I'll read you one of the most beautiful passages. But, you know, Yogananda's experience in Vrindaban, he was a master, he was an avatar, he was free, but he didn't, wasn't always that way. Many, many lifetimes before freedom, he was like us. And he made a decision. He decided to seek God. And what did that really mean? Because we're doing it. We're trying it. So we take time to sit in silence, in meditation, to feel God. Because in motion, um, Master tells us that motion is where maya is, delusion. It covers all that's real, which is in, found in stillness. And so in meditation, we try to achieve stillness so that we can feel God within us as love, as peace, as joy, as our own being. But also, during the day, we take time. We bring our mind back to God as often as we can. Frank Laubach Frank set a great standard for us but we have time. One of the things that is interesting to me, people, of course, get on the spiritual path. And one of the, I've worked here at our guest services for a long time. One of the obstacles that everybody faces is, well, I don't have time. You know, I don't have time to do all these practices. And the interesting thing is, meditation does take time. You have to allow time and you have to do it. But you find that actually you're time sort of opens up, and you actually have time to do it. And it, 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 your day makes room for it. But the rest of the path doesn't take any time at all. Loving God fits very nicely. <laughs> you don't have to just stop everything and love God. You can be walking. You can be washing dishes. You can be, you might have one mental project, and then you have a, a break, and then you can you have time to reconnect and to ask that God flow through you and to ask that he bless you in what you're doing. And so it's really just not time-consuming. It's just memory. It's just demanding that we re remember to do it. So we just apply ourselves, and it gets easier and easier. Um, but we have to start somewhere, so we start wherever we are. Um, and in, in the reading that Bharat read, it, the emphasis was on that if you do this, everything else in life will get taken care of. Your material needs will be met, which 
obviously is important to all of us. But more than that, you begin to feel this increasing joy and fulfillment all the time in your life, which is even better. So it's good to have food, it's good to have shelter, yes, but really to have joy as part of that, it's, it's just uh, it's, it's a, a, an amazing, amazing blessing for all of us and an encouragement to keep trying. So I was thinking about how we read about the autobiography, but those of us who have lived here or have been coming here for a long time have had the opportunity to watch uh, our teacher, Swami Kriyananda, exemplify what it looks like because this was his life, completely turning his consciousness, his desires, his thoughts, his actions over to God. And in reflecting on his life, one of the things that was very, you know, while you're with him, you're just, everybody's laughing and having fun and you're not paying attention. But now that he's gone, you look back and say, wow, wow. Um, you know how in life, you're feeling really calm and then something comes along and like shakes you up and then you're not so calm and maybe you, you shut down a little bit or you, you jump or you uh, just get a little bit um, reactive. And now that was something that I never saw in Swami. And um, there's a picture of him that y many of us have seen. Parvati told me about this. He's sitting in a chair at the Crystal Hermitage. He's wearing his blue robe. He's sort of turned to the side in a very he looks very kind of just pleasantly happy, okay? He's just sitting there like that, rela very relaxed. And it's a, it's a very appealing picture. And Parvati said that moments after that picture was taken, someone came and dropped hot coffee on his lap. And she said he did not move, his expression did not change. He was not simply sitting there affable and relaxed, he was connected to the source. And in that source, he was, he was in a very uplifted, calm state where the little things that came along, just, they don't, hot coffee, oh, all over my robe, oh, hot on my lap, oh. It didn't even, he didn't even, he didn't change. He didn't move, he didn't change his expression. He stayed the same. Um, I was reading, uh, a story that Hashi shared. It's actually one of the things I love from Asha's book on Swami Kriyananda as we knew him. She talked about um, when she lived in Illinois before coming to Ananda, her little community invited Swamiji out to Illinois to do a wedding for someone. And so he, he was on his way back from New York and he stopped in Illinois and he was no doubt wearing his Swami robes to perform the wedding. And, this was Illinois, you know, in the, in the 60s, and they weren't too enthusiastic about a California swami. And um, one man at the, at the um, reception, swami greeted him, the way he greets everyone, <coughs> kindly, warmly, and the man just turned around and just shut him out. A, a purposeful snub. And Hashi said, it was very interesting. Swami stood completely still for a moment. He wanted to see, was the man like 
you know, he heard a sound and he turned around. Is he going to turn back? He didn't know. And then he realized that, no, the man was not going to turn around. And she said, a look of compassion just flowed across his face. She said, I wasn't even sure that he registered that the man was insulting him. He just felt compassion because he didn't get riled, because he was connected, because he practiced first things first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That was his reality. And so he was just always there just to give and be in God. And so this is something, an invitation for all of us. Um, in, at some point in my life, I faced a decision that was very, very big to me. Um, and I had to, I, I really felt it was very, very important and I wanted to get it right. And so every morning for several mornings, I held it up in meditation. Do you want me to take this choice? This is what I want to do. This is what I don't want to do. What do you want me to do? And I held it up, and every time I thought about what I wanted to do, there was this uh, distinctive heaviness that said, don't do it. And every time I thought about what I didn't want to do, there was this blissful feeling. <laughs> oh, no. So I, um, I, I had to go with the guidance because it was the strongest guidance among the strongest I've ever received. So I went with what I didn't want to do, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. But in the meantime, I wrote a letter to Swami just to describe, here's what's happening, I want to do what God wants me to do, bum, bum, bum. And I got a letter back from him, and he said, Anandi, this world is a dream. God is pleased when you only want to do what he wants you to do. So if you get it right, it doesn't really matter. If you get it wrong, it doesn't really matter. What matters is I want to do what God wants me to do. I might not have the best discrimination. I might not be able to execute what he wants me to do in a successful fashion. But if I try to do that, that is pleasing. And so that's a beautiful thing to keep in mind, to remind ourselves, and what do we want to do that's more important than that? I mean, and, and I think actually, to tell you the truth, I'm sure there are people here going, but wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I really, really want to go with that yet, because there are things I want to do, and I really want to do them, and what if God says no? So. If you feel that way, then I have something I want to share with you. <laughs> and it's not what you think. It's not what you think. It's not, I'm not castigating you. Um, this is something that Swami wrote in 1970. Uh, he, he, he shared this in a talk. It's in Asha's book. And it was so touching to me. So here you are. You don't want to do what God wants you to do. Or it would be nice if he wanted you to do it, but you're going to do it anyway. But here's what Swami says. God doesn't mind your faults. He just wants you to love him. Don't put yourself down for not yet being perfect. If you love God and love Master and try to serve them to the best of your ability, 
He won't be angry with you for not doing it well enough. Don't beat yourself up for having darkness in you. Just try to love God all the more. He doesn't care how many faults we have. What touches him is our love. So no matter what we are doing or not doing that we're feeling good about or bad about, really just keep bringing your mind back to praying for the ability to love God more deeply. Even when things look disastrous around you, if you make that your focus, help me to love you more deeply, you'll see that things unravel in a very lovely way, often a surprising way. As I said, you, you can't imagine what Ananda has gone through in these last years. And it's not because of somebody coming in with a checkbook with lots of money or whatever. It, it's because of everyone involved trying to do this not perfectly, but to the best of our ability. There's a story that um, this uh, disciple of um, Ananda Ma told us. He was visiting Ananda. And Ananda Ma is a great uh, woman saint, highly regarded in India. And in Autobiography of a Yogi, there's a chapter about her called The Bliss Permeated Mother. And she is probably, she's no longer in the body, but she was probably about five feet tall at the most. She had tiny hands, tiny feet. There was a, he, the disciple was talking about how different people in India have uh, very noticeable different body structures and how the people from the Punjab are very big and strong. And this very big, strong Punjabi woman visited Ma's ashram, and she was challenging all the women there uh, for, to wrestle her. And they, you know, were game, and they tried it. And of course, she won all the time, because she was way bigger than all of them. And then Ananda Moyama said, I'll wrestle you. And so she stood, you know, to, to wrestle, I guess you stand like this, you know, standing wrestling. And she said, he said, Ma just turned her wrist, and the woman was on the floor. And then Ma sat down and put three fingers on her chest, and she couldn't get up. So why? Because God, and she was a connected with God, God is the one who created the material universe. So God's power is greater than anything in the material universe. And if we make that our first connection, our first desire is to connect with that, that is going to change our lives. Uh, many years ago, Swamiji, every time at, uh, when New Year's would come around, he'd give us an assignment for the year. And this year, I think Ananda had been around at least 20, 25 years. So a lot of people had been here for 20 years. Swamiji said, our assignment for this year is I want you to practice the presence of God for five minutes a day. Now, that didn't include your meditation, but five minutes a day. Now, I and many other people probably thought, oh, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. That's not hard. Well, I looked at my life and I said, I don't do that all the time. I want to do that all the time. I, I think of God here for, you know, a minute or so, and 
maybe here for a minute or so, but do I have five consecutive minutes? So I started to practice it. So I have an eight minute, had an eight minute walk to work, and so, okay, start out the walk, practice the presence of God. One minute into it, what am I gonna do today? And what phone calls am I gonna make? And what do we, okay, okay, back, come back, start over. Do it again, 30 seconds later, change. You know, so just, so what ended up happening is by the end of my eight minute walk, I hadn't done five consecutive minutes of practicing the presence of God. So that meant later during the day, maybe during lunch break, I had to try again, but I couldn't do it again. So, but then later on my walk home, I had to try it again. Okay, well, I didn't succeed then. Okay, but then later, washing dishes, well, I had to try it then. So it ended up, this simple assignment ended up creating an avenue to kind of keep me on point. So I would actually like to throw out the challenge to all of us here, give it a try, because you'll see that if you attempt five minutes and you fail as I did, then you end up, you've got to keep at it. And it starts to make a continuous flow of God's presence in your day, which is exactly what we want. And to conclude, I want to read to you from one of my favorite passages from this Frank Laubach book. He had gotten to the point now, he, he gave himself a very strenuous challenge that he was, for two months, he was going to keep God in mind every minute. And this is what he said. This concentration upon God is strenuous, but everything else has ceased to be so. I think more clearly. I forget less frequently. Things which I did with a strain before, I now do easily and with no effort whatever. I worry about nothing and lose no sleep. I walk on air a good part of the time. Even the mirror reveals a new light in my eyes and face. I no longer feel in a hurry about everything. Each minute I meet calmly as though it were not important. Nothing can go wrong except one thing. That is, that God may slip from my mind if I do not keep on my guard. If he is there, the universe is with me. My task is simple and clear. Lord Most High, our Heavenly Father, all our lives we dedicate to Thee, all our labors, all our joys and woes, all our pleasures, all our each a channel of thy peace when in darkness guide us from above where there's sorrow may we sow thy joy where there's hatred may we share thy love please join us Lord most high our heavenly Father